Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here, just recording this on my headphone mic to save some time. As of this recording, the last episode, Dalek Invasion of Earth, has had a record 229 listens on SoundCloud, which is amazing given that our first episode, An Unearthly Child, has only had 207 listens to date. That 229 listens is since that episode was posted two weeks ago. So this is awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like, however, to comment on our podcast, and I will make reference to this in the podcast itself, we do have a free Target book giveaway. So by all means, please listen to the end of the podcast to find out information about how you could get a free Doctor Who book. Anyway, hope you enjoy the episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Take care. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the humongous task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally humongous three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. Yeah, talk about humongous. Uh, There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Yes, it's me. I'm Hughes-mongous. (laughs) Hughes-mongous. Okay, that's good. That's good. We'll leave that in. And finally, we have our novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and is not previously read any of the books and this time around it's the wise and wonderful Allison Fitch Safried. Hello Allison. Look, I didn't know I was supposed to prepare a material about Howard Hughes or something ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> this time we're getting back to the equally wise and wonderful and sadly late Ian Martyr, discussing his novelization of the eleventh Doctor Who story The Rescue. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Rescue, adapted by Ian Martyr from the script by David Whitaker that aired from 1265 to 1965, published by Target Books in 1987. As of this recording in June of 2017, this title is currently out of print but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 139 pages. It's already June. It's already June, and it kind of feels like it up uh, up in my crib today. Everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. I'm going to read the back of the book first, and then we will get started with uh, some background material on this puppy. From his one previous visit, the Doctor remembers the inhabitants of the planet Dido as a gentle, peace-loving people. But when he returns, things have changed drastically. It seems that the Didoi Didoi, have brutally massacred the crew of the crashed space liner Astra. Even now, they are threatening the lives of the sole survivors Bennett and the orphan girl Vicky. Why have the di- 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 sorry? Why have the Didoi apparently turned against their peaceful natures? Can Bennett and Vicky survive until the rescue ship from Earth arrives? And who is the mysterious Coquillian? 
that's how you pronounce that awful, awful name, and not Cocky Licken, as Ian actually says in the televised version. (laughs) Yes, that's obviously not in the novelization. I'm surprised it isn't, because Ian Martyr would have just adored doing something like that. They tried, but it was... It was edited out, perhaps. Yeah, we gotta talk about that. We discussed Ian Martyr at some length in episode 8. But just to remind new listeners, Ian Martyr was the only actor in the original series of Doctor Who who also did novelizations, and he's second only to Terrence Dix in the number of novels he did, a mere nine to Dix's 64, but Mm. still. Close second. Close second. And Alexander Hamilton wrote the rest of them. Exactly, it feels that way. It seems he did this book right after, or during, Reign of Terror, Since the two books came out in just the same 12-month period, he died in the autumn of 1987 just after completing this manuscript, which may or may not explain some of the oddness of it. Our old friend Nigel Robinson, who commissioned this book from Martyr, uh, Martyr, added the epilogue, which we really need to talk about now that Allison has just read it and seen Mm. what we were talking about. We also need to talk about something else. We need to talk about the fact that Ian Martyr believed these books should not be just for kids, or perhaps even for kids at all, if Nigel Robinson is to be believed. And by the way, any of you listening to this with your kids at home, A, cover their ears for a few minutes, and B, shame on you. (laughs) We're not family friendly. I think we proved that in our last few episodes. We are not family friendly. How dare you? According to Robinson, and I quote... Probably the manuscripts which needed the least editing were Ian Martyr's. The Rescue, for instance, was left quote-unquote unfinished at the time of his death, but apart from my adding a couple of scenes here and there and tidying up a few lines, there was very little work for me to do on his books. He did have a tendency to see how much he could get away with, however. I cut an entire scene from the first chapter of The Rescue where he was more or less discussing the delights of fellatio. Unquote. So that bit in the prologue that looks like a 69 joke is indeed a 69 joke. I Yes, because this book begins with those stellar stirring lines. Hear that, Oliphant? 69? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that actually is exactly what it appears to be. It is a Beavis and Butthead reference before <laughs> Beavis and Butthead. I love Ian Martyr. I adore Ian Martyr, God rest his soul. Needless to say, there's a lot of difference between the book and the televised version, mainly because of two things. One, the original is only two parts long. That's surprising. Yeah. Yeah. It's a two-parter. And it's specifically written by previous script editor David Whitaker, who is generally capable of much better work, and it was specifically to introduce the new character, Vicky, obviously. Interesting that last time Sheena asked whether or not they considered getting an actress who looks similar to Carol Ann Ford to recast Susan. Apparently they did ask Maureen O'Brien, who plays Vicky, if she'd consider cutting her hair short and dyeing it black, to which she replied, why don't you just get Carol Ann Ford back? Rock on. Yeah, exactly. She stood up to them. Well, no one would be happy with that. No. With the pale imitation of a previous character. Yeah, exactly. Even though Vicky kind of... Well, I don't know. We'll have to talk about that. Because this is a character introduction story, characterization is much more important than anything else in the sliver of a plot that it has. The original episode has only the TARDIS crew, Vicky, and Bennett. And that's it. The other characters are all martyr. 
Hmm. Yeah. And Martyr seems to have a very different take on the story than... uh, So the other ship, the Seeker, isn't in the episode? Isn't in the episode at all. all. None of that. The prologue does not happen. The epilogue does not happen. And in fact, when we get to those parts, we'll talk about what happens in the televised version that's different. Even the Daidoi. The Daidoi are not called the Daidoi, for one thing. Hmm. Okay. So, I, I guess that's the more proper Latin plural, or Greek plural. It depends on what... Well, Dido's Latin, is that? I don't know. The only Someone, Dido I know is the singer. The singer, yeah, it exactly. And there's only the one of her. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go down with this ship. Well, that was the soundtrack to it through the entire thing till we got to Walking on Broken Glass. Exactly. Towards, oh. the, yeah, towards <laughs> the end of the temple, yes. And that oh, took over in, yeah. in my mental soundtrack. Let's... Jump right into the rescue, shall we? Well, what do you want to talk about first? Do you want to talk about the cover? Do you want to talk first impressions? Do you want to talk... Let me pass this around because I do have the original print copy from 1987, Mm -hmm. which is far more worth the money than Planet of the Giants, which came out later and was more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Shorter book, larger print, Yeah. more money. Yeah, and done by Taron Sticks. Just makes it ten times worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I enjoy the uh, the depictions of the, the creatures on the, on the, the cover. Coquillian is at the top, and Sandy the Sand Monster is at the yeah, bottom. Definitely modeled after whatever actual craziness happened. Yeah, yeah, it's. <laughs> They're interesting. They're, yeah. Is that how they look on the show? Or is that yeah, it is. That's pretty much it. Yeah, so like even this, though... you can even picture someone being underneath. And that's exactly what's <laughs> happening. You've got some poor actor pulling his lower body along <laughs> with his upper body strength. Only it's the saddest the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, first impressions. Who went first last time? I think it was Dalton, so... Let's go with Allison this time. I think he's making that up. I think you somehow wrote me into going first each time. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I think remember, went first. remember yeah. this oh, is that's true. the only the third of these that I have read ever. So I've only read the two that are by Dix, which are mm. pretty spare on the yeah. prose. So this was, in terms of the visual arts, almost mannerist. Or Baroque in comparison, <laughs> if I may be all pretentious for a moment. Oh, please do. Which I thought was both the strength and the weakness, because at first I thought, this is going to be a long, hard slog. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is very evocative, but maybe a page and a half wasn't entirely necessary for establishing the scene. But then when you, you get used to it, yes, it's overwrought, but for crying out loud, it's a TV adaptation, that's okay. It doesn't yeah. have to be Hemingway. Yeah. So um, I the only place that really was a slog, I thought, was in the establishment scenes of um i don't think it was a problem for the landscape but in describing the exact relationship of the different ship parts in relation to one another i thought okay is this going to be important later no it's not it's not and then later towards the end um i found it challenging sometimes to keep up with the elaborate descriptions of the logistics of the ramp how long is this ramp oh yeah yeah then towards the middle when they're going around the uh sort of creature cave from return of the jedi the moving (laughs) platform and the teeth and everything and that was in the televised um was i well it was described in such detail that i had to keep rereading to keep up with what was going on but those are three parts and you know 130 pages so actually overall i thought it was quite enjoyably overwrought over descriptive okay 
now that now that you know that that first part wasn't in the televised version, does it strike you as quite as overwrought now? Um, no, the, not the introduction, the uh, not the framing device with the seeker, but the first shots of the planet and the wreck. Oh, yeah. so detailed. The now, I actually liked the, the framing mm. device um, okay. and found it very entertaining. It actually reminded me of something from the first episode <coughs> of. It's like 19, starting like 90 or 91, um, a cartoon, serial cartoon that was billed as the American anime Exosquad. Oh, Exosquad. Starts with a really similar yes. scene of a sort of oafish yes. crew of a ship that kind of reminded me a bit about that. It's about, you know, it's about the same, you know, written about the same time. It sure does, um, and of course. I, I liked some details about, like, you know, the 3D crossword puzzle, and I thought it was mm-hmm. nice establishing, um... I thought it was better to start with that establishing scene than go straight into all this detail about the landscape. Otherwise, I might not have made it through. Yeah, exactly. So I thought it was smart to put in a framing device. Terrific. Uh, Dalton? Yeah, I um, I agree with you. I'm feeling like some of it is very much just like so wordy, so chunky, so like, ugh. But I didn't mind any of it. I really like, I enjoyed a lot of the descriptions. Uh, same thing with you at the end when they're talking about the ramp and the description of that. I'm, I was having a lot of trouble visualizing a lot of that. Um, so this is definitely something that I want to go back and see on screen because I get the gist of it, but it's like I want to see what I came up with it in my head versus what is actually depicted on screen. You may be disappointed. I mean, I believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, We're back to the production in my head is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also, for the framing device, I kept wanting them to kind of come back to the crew. Right. Come back mm-hmm. to the rescue ship. Be like, yeah. okay, well, if they say they're going to be here in three days, okay, we have yeah. three days for the doctor and his mm-hmm. companions to do whatever and figure out whatever here. Mm-hmm. And then something's going to happen. But, like, they never really come back to them until the very end. Yeah. And that's where I was just like, but why? Yeah. And I, I have a theory about that. I have a theory about why that framing device is there. And it's borne out by, strangely enough, one of the Goodreads reviews mm. had the same theory. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Now, they say that he, well, I, and I believe that he died soon after finishing this. Did he, was he at the end of an illness where he knew this might be his last project? Or is it more sudden? He, yeah, in fact, uh, as I recall, he was dying of cancer. Mm. Okay. So he did know that this would be his last okay. project, even though the uh, final end, I believe, was fairly sudden. But yeah, yeah, he was pretty much aware. In fact, this book and Reign of Terror constitute what's called Ian Martyr's late period, because his early books are the stories that he appeared in. Yeah. And they're okay. They're a little... His uh, character's name was Harry, so they're a little Harry heavy at times, <laughs> but that's fine because and then he's... a very handsome, clever man came in. <laughs> exactly, and Harry saved yes. everyone. So there's not that. quite how you remember it. <laughs> but then the middle books are the ones that he didn't appear in, and those are considered by fans to be not quite as good. And then these two are considered the cream of the crop, yeah. especially this one. Um, though having reread this one now, well, we've, we've got to talk about that. We really do. Well, I started with somewhat of a negative description because that was a first impression, but this mm-hmm. is by far my favorite of the three that I've read. Really? Oh, yeah. She okay. doesn't like the dicks. Well, no, I, I like them fine. <laughs> she um, does. Remember, they were both much better than I expected, but I had really low expectations coming yeah. in. And, yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true, especially with Planet of Giant Dicks. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> one's expectations are great. It's true. Oh yeah. Hmm. That is a sex joke at the beginning. And I can't get around that. I mean, even though it is Ian Martyr, I have trouble. In fact, that kind of almost ruined the prologue for me this time. But it's appropriately done where, like, if you were a child reading this and you didn't get the reference, you would run right over it, which is the best kind of all ages, slightly dirty yeah. joke. Yeah, okay. Where, That's kind of yeah. what I got out Chris of Chris Claremont's infamous for this. And oh, like yeah. his 80s comics X-Men, where yeah. you would not notice all his, all the phallic imagery necessarily. Of course, he from the artist but some of the rather lurid references that are in there as a child and years go later you reread it like wow this is actually kind of pleasantly dirty um so i didn't have a problem with it yeah that that line i actually like i I went back and reread it and i was like was that intentional was that it could be but it also was kind of just like brushed off in a way yeah so it's like all right i'm an adult i'll take it as that Mm -hmm. but it could also just what it is yeah so it's we also get some swearing in that prologue too which surprised me quite a bit and i'm trying to remember it's in my notes but now i can't remember exactly where the swearing came it's probably damn it shall we find it and read it on air sure (laughs) that would be useful um i'm almost certain it's a character saying damn it or god damn it because that's what usually uh stands out to me if only because Still, in 1987, these were considered children's books. Yeah. Hell. I was going to say, I saw the hell, but I'm looking for something worse than hell. (laughs) He unzipped a pocket on his tunic and took out a fresh sachet of gum, so. (laughs) So at least there's So so far, all ages. Huh. I'm wondering if it was the hell, though I have some trouble thinking that that would have been enough for me to uh, have put it in my notes. Well, seems one hell of a way to come just to salvage a couple of immigrants. Yeah. Even if one of them is a dame. So you've got a little <laughs> misogyny a dame. There too, so. It's like all of a sudden we're in guys and dolls. So about how old yeah. is the actress um, who is Vicky? She a teen? You would ask me that. Well, um, I visualized in this, I visualized her being more like 10 or 12. She's not. But. She's not. Um, if memory serves, she's the same age as Carol Ann Ford, or roughly, so she's mid-20s. The character is supposed to be younger. So the character is obviously supposed to be like 15, 16. A teen, child. A teen. See, I wasn't getting that at all. Really? I was not getting that she was that young. Oh, wow. Okay. I was just getting that, of course, she was stuck here on this planet, stranded, and kind of just being taken advantage of. Oh, okay. And that that would be more in keeping with the way Maureen O'Brien actually plays the character. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that's probably what Ian Martyr was getting out of it, too, because... Yeah, we need to talk about that weird relationship she has with Bennett and the whole Coquillian thing. Because, Lord. I mean, I knew something was up from the second, I don't remember what page it was on, what chapter, but they they have an interaction and then he describes the way that Bennett, like, has this look on his face that yes. she doesn't and see. And the Spanish beard, which clearly is a sign of <laughs> trickery or oh, yes. something. Yes. Yes. It's sinister. But yeah, that being put there, it's like, all right, this is like the first or second chapter, and you're already telling me this guy is not good. Yeah. Yeah, and he plays it even more broadly in the televised version, so I'm sure Martyr is giving us that little bit of foreshadowing, which we don't really need, because as murder mysteries go, there's not much of a mystery. Except right. for what happened to the die yeah. 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 So there's at least that. Well, and it's one of these these things that 
we keep running into of what is the actual danger? We have a feeling of danger. We have an explanation mm-hmm. that there is danger, mm-hmm. but we don't actually see the danger. No. It's not well, the danger that was that Coquillian would decide to kill them. Yeah. That, but mm-hmm. other than that, like, he, that you see him one or two times, but other mm-hmm. than that, they're like, they're worried about these other creatures, and it's like, mm-hmm. they're not here. We don't yeah. see them. Exactly. What are you so worried about? And the only, <laughs> and in fact, the only way Vicky knows their threat is what Bennett tells her. Exactly. So she's got this sort of weird. Not quite Stockholm syndrome going on. It's not quite that developed, but, but it's a visualized her as younger though because she was mm-hmm. so easily manipulated. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's emotionally intelligent to not like him and not trust him. Right, but it's not very hard for him to um, get her to conform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either. And I think he does describe her as I have it in my notes that he describes her as the correct age for the character. So that must have been where you were getting well, the fact that she was talks really about young. her looking like Joan of Arc, so I should have visualized, you know, more of a teen then rather than a child. Right, right. And I think that is the case, because definitely she's she's older than her character by that point. Um, The TARDIS. (laughs) Uh, You know, we should just jump right into that fan theory about what's going on in the book. Because nothing approaching it happens in the televised version. Mm-hmm. I thought the TARDIS was throwing off the, nega- the navigational systems and was responsible for all the interference in the opening and ending framing sequence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the larger fan theory, as one of the uh, reviewers pointed out, is that he thinks, because of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, the TARDIS actually caused the Astra to crash. So there's a bit of, you know, how what would you hmm. say predestination yeah, going on there that Vicky was no, that always meant to. I thought end it was going to be actually more explicitly drops, followed yeah. up yeah. at the end. Yeah, and I think that might actually be what's happening, because that would explain why the rescue ship takes so long to get there, because it's basically collided with the TARDIS twice. Yeah, I actually thought that the rescue ship was going to turn out to be uh, moving at a different pace through time. Mm. Then the planet, the planet was going to actually be on a different timeline. So oh. they thought the ship was three days away or sixty hours away, but actually be years away. Oh, but that I was wrong. So there would have been some be relativistic case. thing going on, like but that, possibly uh, caused by the TARDIS rather than by gravity. Oh, that's a good idea. Or yeah. it would have been like that Star Trek Voyager episode, Wink of an mm-hmm. Eye, where um, they're passing mm-hmm. through the planet's atmosphere yeah. and centuries are going yeah. by below. Or Interstellar, minutes. we're on the high gravity planet. Oh yeah. You know, a few hours to them on the planet, mm-hmm. but it's you know twenty years on the ship. But that yeah. that fan theory was wrong. No, nope. Martyr could have done that. Though it's interesting enough that he did this, because, yeah. yeah, it kind of makes everything that happens with the TARDIS crew not nearly as innocent as it was before. Because the tar- uh, the Doctor, even though he's never going to know this, bears some responsibility for mm-hmm. the Vicky's, Vicky's father dying and all of that. Well, the whole Didoi race yes. being destroyed. Yeah. Yes, the remainder of the Didoi, in fact... Ah, let's talk about... I know we're putting the cart before the horse, but I don't care. Let's go straight to the epilogue. Consequences be damned. Yes. But family-friendly language. Exactly. The (laughs) epilogue is not written by Ian Martyr. Oh. That is Robinson. That sliver of an epilogue (laughs) 
in which the Daidoi are killed. That complete bummer that Dalton had to explain to me. Yes, two sentient anthropoid beings located in the vicinity of Wreck, believed to be male and female, both killed during encounter with support group personnel before any contact established, so they shot first. Mm-hmm. No evidence of any other intelligent life. Return visit believed unproductive. Quit Dido, orbital terrestrial year 112250.55. Happy Christmas. Peace on Earth. Goodwill to all persons. Which is just like... It's like a knife in your mm-hmm. back at the very end of yeah. it. Goodwill to all persons. Which, in my PDF copy... Is on its own page. Goodwill to all persons <laughs> is on its own Take that. Page. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is yeah. even more impressive, really. It ends, peace on earth, flip the page, goodwill to all persons. Morbid so that's like, it, that's yes. like a knife in the back. That's, not, really that's not in the stomach in a twist. That's in the back. That's Oh, by the way. Yeah. And granted, Ian Martyr has a reputation for that because most of what Robinson ever had to do to his manuscripts was cut out the blood and guts. He tended to make the, the stories a lot gorier. I mean, with Reign of Terror, he still did it. We got nasty things like, you know, well, Robespierre <laughs> being shot in yeah. the jaw, for instance. Yeah, there were a lot of good details in there. Oh, God, were there ever. And yet they kind of had to be there. But this, that ending is just so nihilistic. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, my Lord God. But yeah. does here's the question. Does it add to the book for you? Does it ruin the book for you? Does it work with what you saw up to that point I think it it definitely brought like a I don't know a humanistic aspect to it that like wasn't really there how so well just like it it feeling like it kind of it doesn't it doesn't really explain why they do it but I don't not even humanistic it shows how fucked up humans can be (laughs) and how we will uh excuse some of our actions as virtuous right even when they're not right um and i remember there was there was a portion in there where they talk they're talking about um talking about global warming on uh, on taito um and relating that back to earth Mm -hmm. and and i i've talked about how some of the other books have been very uh prescient to yeah. current events. Well, part of that is because this is late 80s, so the authors are sticking that in. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it definitely took an interesting turn at the end. I mean, okay. it, it does... It, it's arguably a harsh device to show that the Doctor was right all the time. They are extremely kind and hospitable. They came out of hiding to help these strangers, and then they were presumably trying to greet the new ship, yeah. and that's what got them killed. Yeah. And that's so, what so the doctor was me. right about their fundamentally kind and hospitable character. Right. Yeah. What happens in the televised version is slightly different. For one thing, the Didoans, the Didoans as they're called in the televised version, are humanoid. It's two males, by the way. So it's like, oh, the final survivors are male, and there's a same-sex relationship there. Woo! And they're both cute. I like them. <laughs> but... I mean, you know, 1964 cute, but still, that's pretty damn cute. Um, And they do the whole thing with uh, confronting Bennett in the cave. They also, at the very end, after the TARDIS has left, they go into the Astra and they smash everything. Hmm. They smash the radio and they smash the ship so that it appears that there there was never any evidence of any survivors ever. But that's the last we ever see of them. 
So the rescue ship has no reason really to land anymore. So I've, I've, I've wondered why it is that he changed them so fundamentally, because the Daidoi are so... That's probably why the name's different. The Daidoi are so completely different from the televised version's Daidoans that they are a different race. Mm. They're completely alien. I was wondering what you thought of that change. Didn't see the original episode, so I wasn't thinking of it as a change. Okay. Well, now that you're aware of it. Do you think they're more hostile in the original? Um, no, no. But they do smash the equipment, and they smash any evidence that anyone was ever really there. Which would probably lead Earth to think, oh, well, the natives are hostile if they still exist, yeah. which would lead to the destruction of them if they ever were caught. But changing them from humanoid, I mean, and changing mm. them and tacking on that ending. In the episode, does the doctor talk about how shocked he is that they would kill everyone because when he had met them before, they yes. were very kind and gregarious? He does. Oh. He does. Yeah. That that previous visit is still there. I so. don't have strong feelings. Okay. They're not shown to have a lot of personality. I don't recall if they speak at all or communicate at all, just act. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're pretty much just described. There's not a whole lot of action that they do themselves. It's all a lot of the doctor well, describing what he experienced with them. But so they not. do kill someone. And that was a little unexpected. They do. Based on how the doctor described them. But it's Bennett. Yes, yes. Yeah, and he, he had it coming. But you you could infer from the doctor's description that they were absolutely nonviolent, and they were apparently just usually nonviolent. Yeah, though I have a feeling that having most of their race wiped out by him, and then... Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's the other big change. The other big change is... And this is something... I, I'm really just impressed with Martyr's job on this. That in the televised version, there's no reference to the planet being in decline. There's no reference to that weird sort of orbit it has that causes it I to go into decline. I thought it was really decline. interesting. Yeah, I think that's an, uh, absolutely fascinating. And there's no reference to them being such a, you know, such a small race. So you were saying that you found that fascinating? Well, yeah, just the concept of, I mean, I don't think that's how gravity works. Well, <laughs> <I don't. laughs> the figure eight orbit, but that they have essentially an orbit that takes centuries and that they know that there are centuries of parched, harsh drought conditions coming. And how would you, you know, is there any such thing as enough foreknowledge to plan for that? And right. I thought there was an interesting idea of planning over multiple generations for something that is centuries long but will terminate. And so it was an interesting concept that their population expands and dwindles where they know it's going to happen and can plan for it. Yeah. Only this time, they, that's why I found it kind of hollow at the end. This time they didn't make it because obviously they're used to making it through worse things than hostile outsiders. They're used right. to making it through the harshest of conditions and live on a um, planet full of hungry creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in the very mountain <laughs> with hungry <laughs> creatures who would like to eat them. So on the one hand, I know it's supposed to be a downbeat ending, but I thought that the discovery of the ruins of the mountain indicated there are probably some more of them yeah. somewhere surviving on the planet. That's what I was thinking too. Especially in the televised version, you get the impression that there can't just be two left. But this book almost makes it seem as if those it are the last. It seems that bleak. It seems... Well, especially pointing out it's a male and a female, so... Right. Yeah. The last breeding pair. Yeah, Adam and Eve gone. are gone. Yeah. Yeah. All, all bets are off. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a creepy book if you think about it too closely. 
I mean, even his description of uh, Coquillian is just like, ooh. Yeah. 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 But that just that just sounded like some of the other creatures on the planet to me. So I was like, all right, here's yeah, this Here's creature. a giant biting fly. Right. Here's this. Who comes in and gives them the business. Here's yeah. this creature from the planet that is higher intelligence and mm-hmm. is not a pet and not wild, but has some kind of, like, cognitive uh, awareness. So it's like... All right, I didn't immediately put together that that was Bennett, but mm-hmm. I had suspicions. <laughs> okay. Well, did you did you think it was Bennett? I once again, I don't try to figure it out. So if I do, it's really badly written. So you know, obviously <laughs> there was something up with Bennett, but I didn't yeah. try to guess what specific thing. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I didn't think yeah. it was going to turn out to be the village, but obviously it was the village on Tatooine, I guess. <laughs> um, crappy desert planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, but. I'm one of the very few people who actually liked the village, though, and for different reasons. My main problem with Bennett, and perhaps perhaps I've missed something obvious here, is understand why he killed the rest of the crew of the ship. He Mm -hmm. killed everyone who knew that he he had been arrested, but it hadn't been put out on Interpol or Intergalax. Why did he need to try to kill Ian and Barbara? Because they would also have not known that he had been arrested for murder, just kind of like the, the crew of the Seeker wouldn't have known. It yeah. wasn't clear to me why he immediately tried to kill them. That's a good question. Don't know what do you think. I just think he's just a bad egg. <laughs> I just think, I mean, you've already killed everyone on your ship. The majority of this. But they could alien... have been a, a ride out of there. Yeah, it just seemed. But that's a ride out of there, and you kill them, you steal their ship, and then no one knows. True. You got a you got a clean getaway. You don't have to worry about anyone following you. You don't have to worry about someone chasing you down, arresting you again. But he created know. a collapse to trap their ship inside. I just I thought it was at odds with the image of him being quite clever and the master of the situation. Just have him try to kill a couple of people yeah. without even trying to manipulate them or get their ship first. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's that it's a lack of forethought on his part that he thinks. Um, Maybe if I do kill these guys, I can take their ship. And Vicky will think that, oh, we just, I found the ship. It's yeah. in the, it's in the cave. I'll but also, like, this. at that point, weren't they aware that the rescue ship was coming? They were. So then it's, the rescue ship is coming. There are people on the planet that weren't here with us that are not part of our crew mm. that will be like, okay, well, where's the rest of your crew at? Right. If the rescue ship comes and starts questioning, then they're, multiple people there that are bystanders that are like, we don't know what's going on. We, we got here and this is what happened. Oh, that raises more questions. That could be it. And so it's like you, you, mm-hmm. you get rid of anyone that could cause someone to question. Right. So because at this point, Bennett and, and Vicky are the only two and Vicky is pretty much a climate sinker bought everything Ben has told her. Okay. So you think he's thought it through that far? I don't know if he's necessarily thought it through, but it definitely makes more sense as someone who's already killed a whole race of people and everyone that was on his ship to just yeah. be like, you are just disposable. Yeah. True. So it's not necessarily thought out, but it's definitely, that's his, his mode of operation. So yeah. he's, he's already out for blood. So exactly. What's a couple more bodies. Yeah. And I think the fact that we're able to attribute that motivation to him speaks more to Ian Martyr's characterization mm. than it does to the original script. Because in the original script, it's just, oh, we need two episodes. Mm. <laughs> we need to put these people in danger. Yeah, right. So we're going to push Barbara down a honking big cliff. And right. somehow she survives because she's Babs. 
and Ian, yeah, and Ian gets into this weird kind of uh, extended Raiders of the Lost Ark situation with the Doctor. I really like the imagery of the temple slash museum mm-hmm. and the idea that the native religion had violent imagery, but not actual violence in some ways. Oh. Like they have this costume of a giant biting fly. It's not actually what it's called, but they have this costume. <laughs> they talk about having only ceremonial use, and then Bennett comes in and actually makes it a device of violence. Yes. Yeah. Thus creating what it was never well, really intended seeing, to be. Sort of bringing his own personality and moral perspective oh, yeah. to it. Introducing yeah. violence into either what was never a violent religion or only memorializes certain aspects of it in the same way that, you know, modern Christian Jewish congregations do not actually usually try to reenact the Book of Judges, just talk about it (laughs) in some way. But he comes in and he immediately sees violence in what are used as religious artifacts that are kept in a museum and actually uses them for actual violence. He He tries to kill the doctor Mm -hmm. while wearing it. He embodies it. Instead of it being something that is, is... Intellectual, something to think about, something to ponder upon. It's not symbolism; it's actual. Yeah, it is actual. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. he is. He has become. Yeah, so it's not transubstantiation anymore. It's well, actually, it would be literal transubstantiation. He would like some actual body and blood. Blood of Christ, dude. There you go. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and again, that's more than what's in the two-parter. I mean, we're looking at fifty minutes of screen time, if that, just to bring us Vicky. And, of course, we will talk about Vicky quite soon. But we also have to talk about the uh, our regulars, because this is the first time we've seen them since uh, Susan finally left. <laughs> yes, I'm so happy with that. Oh, and that spiked badly. Let me try it again. <laughs> there we go. That's a little softer. Um, this is the first time we've seen them since Susan left. How do you think uh, Martyr is uh, rendering them? As opposed to Dick's. I like how he describes the doctors obviously being upset and trying not to display it mm-hmm. about Susan being gone and them being annoyed at his repression and finding him more dickish than ever. <laughs> I thought it was nice early characterizations. It's almost too much conflict. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like Dix and Marta are both so committed to the doctor as magnificent bastard that... It, he's really hard to identify with sometimes. Right. And like yeah. I said, that's, you know, that's the characterization. But Yeah, and that's the it thing. It played really hard. I think that's the key thing. You've, you put your finger right on it, that in those early episodes, the Doctor was never the identification character. Mm-hmm. It was always the companions. And in the new yeah. series, that's been looked at in askance sometimes. And they say, oh, for instance, when I introduced it in 2005, mm-hmm. Rose is the main character, not the Doctor. And it's like, well, of course she is. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here drinking out of the Batman mug. You're not supposed to relate to Batman. No. Anyone who writes Batman as your relatable character is doing it wrong. Exactly. So, exactly. I, so I'm, I'm okay with, with the Doctor yeah. being that crotchety, but it's almost overdone. To the At one point he... Uh, well, okay, it was funny that he was more concerned about his coat being ripped than Ian almost dying. But, <laughs> yes, <right. laughs> but you do actually wonder at times, okay, is the, the Doctor actually good is he really that cold-blooded or not? Um, this is someone with very limited perspective of I'm trying, this doctor right here. Just these three sometimes books, I feel episodes. like he gets some 
glee out of watching people squirm. He really does. He but knows things are going to be okay. He's got to figure it out, and he just likes to see people but squirm. That I got before. This was the first time I thought he might it's presented with his internal uh, thoughts. He might not actually care that much if Ian dies horribly. That might just be, you know, a fly smacked or something. He might be cool with that. And that was a lot different than he likes to make Ian squirm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like maybe not that. that much different. A little different. Well, the interesting thing. Like, well, like maybe he's not just messing with people. Maybe he is that guy. I, well, I so. think he might be that guy. Yeah. The the next book is going to portray him very much as that guy, mm. and out of his own mouth because mm. it's 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 an epistolary novel. So we get to hear the doctor's journal. Ah. And yeah, yeah, I think you may be onto something there. I think that's part of the thing that uh, people have trouble with Capaldi's doctor. The Capaldi's doctor is not likable. This season, he's been a little better about that, but he's generally not likable. It's like, who said the doctor ever had to be likable? They got spoiled. They got well, spoiled by David Tennant and Matt Smith. Yes, that, they well, got spoiled. Mm-hmm. The weirdness of hot, young, sexy doctor, which is yes. the anomaly. Yes, even Eccleston yeah. was yeah. comparatively three, a hot, three young, hot sexy young, sexy doctor. Sexy doctors For that right. matter, Peter Davison is a hot, young, sexy doctor, and he's probably the most likable. Yeah. Doctor, and some would, some would say that makes him the most ineffective. I am not one of those people, by the way. <laughs> I am such not a person of the fandom that I visualize Pete Davison from Saturday Night Live. I'm like, wait a minute, he was never the Doctor. He's like 22 years old. <laughs> no, no, not Pete Davison. God, no. That's right. We no, I don't want to see that. <laughs> no, that, that would be interesting. Pete Davison is the Doctor. I'm battling my addictions and aliens. <laughs> Yeah, I could just see it that would be a very too. dickish doctor. <laughs> he would be. He absolutely would be. Um, Babs, how does Babs come across to you? Because Dalton and I are very big fans of Babs. It's like she's almost there, but it's like <laughs> not quite the Babs that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, here's a question. You've read Reign of Terror. Uh-huh. Is she the Babs that was in Reign of Terror? I don't think she has as much spunk. I don't feel like she she has as much of that like tenacity. Yeah. It seems to be a little like even when she's reading Ian the Riot Act for saying um god, what is it that he says to them? Something about you girls or uh all this with Ian and the girls. It's in chapter 10. Yeah, saying that uh, that he's got the girls in tow with you two mm. in tow, and she's like, like in "Oh, tow. really? The girls in tow?" So, eh? No, she has, she has moments where she she like peeks up at there, but I just I feel like there's not like there's not a ton going on here, and like you said, this totally is a this is a story to introduce Vicky. Yes. All the characterization goes to Vicky. Yeah, yeah. and so a lot Which of a lot of what normally would be focused on with with Barbara and Ian. They have their their moments here and there. They have their right. their you know their pithy comebacks and stuff. But overall, it's it's not so much focused on them. Well, the reason I bring that up is because they have a lot more to do in the book than they do the televised version. Chapter ten, for instance, occurs in no way in the televised version. Chapter ten is all new material. So when Barbara's saying, "What do you mean us two in tow? Just you, waiting in Chesterton. We girls aren't so useless as you boys like to think." That is all new material. And I think, personally, I think it's good characterization material, and she does come across as a lot spunkier, but I was thinking more 
of how Vicky reacts to her killing Sandy. Oh, yeah. It very easily could have gone much more to the perspective of Vicky, and it goes entirely to the perspective of Barbara. Okay, in what um, sense? Well, instead of it going to the perspective of Vicky as the mean lady has come in and killed my pet, I think Barbara is shown as the most consistently level-headed person in the most consistently sensible person in the entire book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's not characterized in a very interesting way in terms of persona. Right. And once again, I'm not seeing the performance here, just looking at how it's read, but right. yeah. she, she keeps her head together more than the doctor does in some ways. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, she's the one who, when she sees this creature bearing down on Vicky, she's like, <laughs> she's not going to hear me. I'm going to have to shoot this gun that I don't know how to shoot. Yeah. And yeah. the, the end's going to fall off that's in the televised version. It's a blooper they left in. The thing fell, fell <laughs> apart <laughs> in their hands. It's so well, brilliant. Well, time use. Like yeah. I said, from the fir <laughs> for first introduction in uh, Planet of Giant Dicks, I don't even remember the correct name of that book anymore. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I think, oh gosh, it's going to be the old, oh, the school marm, the shrew, the killjoy is here just to offset the fun yeah. of the boys and the, the younger girl. Right. And it doesn't materialize in a way that's a continual relief. Mm -hmm. Um and it just as easily could have gone in the direction of everyone agreeing with Vicky yeah. that she was awful to kill this obviously fun creature. And other there are assault. Um, the doctor says, "No, I would have done exactly the same thing." That was yeah. actually yeah. quietly very nice that the doctor backed her up. Yes, and that's expanded from the televised version too, because he has that same sort of talk with her, but it's more about how Vic, uh, Barbara's really a good person who is looking out for her, but his line about, I would have done the same thing, is slightly different. Not just she means well, but she's an idiot, but she means well, and that's what anyone would have done in that situation. Yes. She was wrong, yes. but how could she have possibly known? It's actually quietly important. Yeah. Instead yeah. of showing her to be the heavy who is usually wrong about that. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, And... Don't get me wrong about Barbara. I, I feel like she's still there, but as far as like other books we've read where she had a lot more to do, right. there's not so much that going on here. Yeah. So that's what I really mean. Clearly, she's still spunky. She's still mouthy. She's still cerebral and thinking about things before doing them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of action going on. There's not a really a, a place for her to be like, here's me helping us achieve our goal. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of that. No, that's um, true. That's so true. that's that's the kind of stuff like I'm missing is like Barbara and Ram Terror, mm -hmm. who's like outsmarting all these French guards and helping, right? Helping get everyone back together. Though I've noticed that she quickly sizes up the situation between Vicky and Bennett, even though she's concussed and bruised. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yes. that's very yeah. Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, oh I, I've got the dizzies, but I know what's going on here. That's yeah. extremely yeah. Barbara. That's like Barbara and the Sensorites. She's gone from the story for two episodes, but as soon as they bring her down to the planet, she's like, oh, that's what's happening, is it? Yeah. Okay, this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah, but I could see where compared to that story this story is probably slightly more less yeah and and like we said it's it's this one is mainly a vehicle to introduce vicky this one is mainly yes there's characterization yes we we do kind of like see the dynamics of the team without susan there mm -hmm. which is you know that dynamic is completely different yeah. because now the doctor's 
has to rely on Barbara and Ian more, but also now there's a new person too. So yes. how's that going to play out? A new player has added. Yes. Granddaughter was not in quotes. No, it was the doctor's granddaughter, and yeah. I think it's I think it's the narrator's voice rather than one of the characters. It is, and you're right. Uh, Ian Martyr is very much seems to be in the camp that the doctor's granddaughter actually is Susan, because like we said with Reign of Terror. It's the problem there is the quotes are not around granddaughter, the quotes are around her friends. So he doesn't accept Ian and Barbara as friends yet. And in this book, you're right, he is much more dickish. And Martyr makes him even more dickish because I have a, a line, which is one of my favorites in chapter five, where he, he, um, the doctor's trying to tell Ian to go over the uh, around the um, uh, the, 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 the blades, yeah, and the Ian says, "But these are razor sharp blades, Doctor." Mm-hmm. And the Doctor says, "Dear me, so they are. How very inconvenient for you." Well, it's no good trying to climb over them. And you're like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sucks to be you. Yeah, basically, and that's much more. He does much more of that in the written version than he does in the televised. And I guess I should have thought during that scene, well, it's still in the context of he is still pretending to not be upset about Susan, and of course he is. They do bring that up at the beginning, that Mm -hmm. he is upset about Susan, he mentions her, but then he pretends that he's not thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does give more context rather than him just being an ass. Yeah, exactly. He's he's much more than an ass, even at his best. Actually, now I think of that as kind of a nice, dark undertone that compared to Susan... What's losing Ian going to be? Yeah, nothing compared to losing Susan. I know Susan right. didn't die, cool. but maybe he's you know yeah. having second yeah. thoughts about blessing that. Since he was considering putting Ian and Barbara out of the TARDIS ages ago, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're much more friendly now than they ever were. Is he supposedly trying to help them get home, or is he? They're not even a pretense to that. <laughs> well, uh. They make it seem like he's supposed to be trying to get them home, but every attempt he makes to get them home... He's not trying very hard. Yeah. Well, they kind of make it seem like the Doctor doesn't quite understand the TARDIS yet, so he doesn't even Mm. quite know how to control it. So they are... He's trying things out to get them back, and like he's gotten the space right, but Mm. not the time right. He's gotten the time right, but there's been other stuff going on. Exactly. And the next book is going to establish that he thinks he's doing them a favor. By keeping them out in time and space rather than uh, take, taking them home. I mean... Oh, what's the bet about the Coal Hill School being replaced by, a, like, a municipal dump or something? Oh, yeah, I, I love that, that in I chapter that. 8. <laughs> is that yeah. a throwaway gag? That or line that? about the current fate of the Coal Hill School is just lovely. It adds nothing to the plot, but it wasn't in the okay, televised That's version. a standalone gag. I actually really like that. Yeah, it's it's gone line. anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's exactly what Martyr is doing. It's just the, the throwaway lines like that mm-hmm. are just... Luscious. A lot yeah. more fun than dicks. Yeah. So. Is it? <laughs> Martyrdom is much more fun than dicks. <laughs> depending on the quality of dicks. <laughs> and the mode of martyrdom, I suppose. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna have to change the levels. Well before you were talking last week about oh next week we're gonna read a book about martyr, and I was imagining like like Justin Martyr, like M-A-R-T-Y-R and of course Justin Martyr wasn't called that while he was still alive. It was after he died. I'm like so no. Ian Martyr, was he killed for writing the doctor? And yeah. <laughs> different spelling, different name. Nah, he was no. martyred for other reasons. But, yeah. 
Yeah, he's definitely a much more fun writer. And I mean, the bit of, about global warming, updating the recording stuff to a laser disc recorder. It's like, oh, how quaint. Yes. Yeah, it's 1987. But still, it's better than what you see on screen, which is mm-hmm. a tape to tape recorder. Mm. Yeah. I mean, tape to tape, reel to reel tape recorder. I just started watching Legion. I'm so excited. Speaking of tape, of reel-to-reel tape recorders, sorry, that, that I provoked nothing. Um, there's a scene when he's talking to an interviewer who's using reel-to-reel tape to record oh, really? their conversation. Is so, it in period or is it just some peccadillo of this guy? Haven't started watching this yet. No, I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> it's set in the current time, but there are a lot of. Uh, 60s um, aesthetic affectations. Oh, that's wow. one of them. So I'm sorry, okay. I just started a different four-hour conversation. Okay. It just didn't occur no. to me that you hadn't been watching no. it. No, not yet. Not yet, but I will if ever oh. I get the time. Yeah. I might have to... Yeah, we might. I yeah. might have to take you through it. Not yes. take you through it. Not that you can't watch it on your own, but I could not be have believed through. it could be that good. I thought people okay. were just watching it with uh, some really good weed and enjoying it beyond what it deserved. But is that the is that series good? that David Selby is in? I don't know who that is. I wouldn't. Okay, know. David Selby is from Dark Shadows. He was also on Knots Land. I think it was Knots Landing. He was on some. Anyway, we're going far afield. Yes, and I apologize, and I did that. But that's fine. But <laughs> no, I'm just. No, that was an that's... example of. It, it's a program where they use antiquated technology sometimes, just sort of yes. an aesthetic. Uh, and in 1964, device, so. it would not have been antiquated for 1964. Mm-hmm. It would have been antiquated for the frickin' Astra. I don't. But even. <sighs> 80s and 90s movies, you still see the actual reel-to-reel is almost... Yeah. I don't remember this vocabulary word from high school, but what's the word that... It's not icon. It's something like um, an antiquated image that stands in for a device that's since moved on, like the image of the wall-mounted telephone to stand for a telephone. Oh, yes. Or the um, phonograph to stand for any kind of... It's either metonymy or synecdoche. I can't remember which. No, it's not one of those. That's, it's those are the poetic terms. Even fancier than that. Even fancier than that? Yeah, like especially like an icon on your phone of a rotary phone for the phone oh, app. Yes. That word. Yes, yes, that came up recently while Danny and I were watching some YouTube videos, and they used they were saying this is this such as this and this and this, and I was like, they were they were right about the other examples. They were wrong about the one they made the damn video about. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes are. the reel-to-reel recorder can be used as just a symbol right. of recording, symbol even of though recording. we've. Long yeah, since though on print it would have to be laser disc recorder. Yeah. I'm sure someone will write us in. I'm hoping to God that someone will write in and tell us how wrong we were because it would mean that we have listeners who are responding. And those respondents could get a free book, which I still have to give to them. But more details about that later. <laughs> I still expect someone to write an angry comment about the fact that I said that Frank Miller was in some way involved with the crappy electronically produced Iron Man comic from around the time and say, who's the fake girl nerd? But that hasn't um, materialized quite yet. But there is still time before the heat death of the universe for that to happen. We haven't even gotten nasty (laughs) comments. It's ridiculous. Tony, what are you doing wrong? I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but here's the thing, though. We've got to have more controversy. Well, I meant to bring this up. Um, Talk um, about Mike Pence and bring the NSA into it. Well, here's the amazing thing. (laughs) Our last episode got, as of uh, tonight, 209 listens. Really? Yeah, which is more than the first episode got. Well, we have got got. to get Dalton hammered more frequently. 
I think so too. Or I, I need to record things. I was badly. sitting right next to him. I had no idea that that was happening. He was the very soul of discretion. Oh, I believe so too. And I think so too. It was only because I was listening to him blaring in my ear as I was editing. He the, was completely decorous the entire oh, time. He was indeed. I think it was because it was a Daleks episode. Okay. I think that was it. That has a chemical effect on you. No, 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 I'm Dalton. I mean, I think that's why we got so many listeners. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> like, because people are like, I will take all of the credit. No, no, no. No, can't do it this it's time. Just all Dalton stalkers who wanted this to hear him time, slightly compromised. This time it's all going to be about Vicky, and, well, we have to talk about Vicky. First impression, I liked how the character was presented, but she was a little too stupid. Yeah. Okay. Not terribly stupid, mm-hmm. but a little too stupid. But maybe, once again, I don't know where the stories go from here. Maybe it's appropriate that they start her off a little too naive so that she can develop from there. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I was getting, like, naive Susan vibes from her. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that, like we said earlier, was kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. It's very much like she has been taken advantage of the whole time she's been here. And very much like her perspective has been formed for her. Right. So she hasn't really had a chance to come up with anything for herself. But they do start with the promise, or this book, and I, I don't know if this is in the episode yeah. or not, but it does start with the promising premise that Bennett has fundali- fundamentally misunderestimated her. Oh, there's this little girl. She's yeah. never going to figure any of yeah. this out. And of course, she's not the one who ultimately figures out that he's wearing the costume, that's the doctor, but he has under- underestimated her as mm-hmm. a stupid little girl, and that's, that's a good seed to start from. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, she she's definitely never going to be Susan, which is kind of a good thing. Yeah. But she also is her own character, and I'm not giving anything away with her character arc, but where she ends up is, at the same time, very similar to Susan, but quite, quite different. You would not think that this character would end up where she ends up. But good, do something different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just absolutely interesting where she does end up going. But good. You felt the same way about her? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of like, all right, she's young. She's kind of naive. There's not a whole lot going on with her yet. But potential is there. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that we're doing these in story order for this time because you're not going to see a lot of Vicky in the next book simply because... It is an epistolary novel, so it's going to be told from various people's point of view. Vicky's not one of them. She doesn't keep a journal. So we're not going to we're not going to hear from her, unfortunately. But we'll hear from other people about her, and one of them is the doctor, so that's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? How much of an 80s book is this? to expound on that theory? I will. <laughs> I will. <clears throat> there are references to Reganium, named after Reagan. Yeah. Oh, that, that went totally that. over my head. There's, I saw that, yeah. There's a reference to a planet called Geldof 8. Bob Geldof, Bob Geldof was the famous organizer of Live Aid. Yep. Dude, I was born in 79. I know. <laughs> I can't be expected to keep up a tiny with stage managers from concerts in the no. 80s. I was born in 85. So. Yeah, but he uh, would have been the organizer of, you know... Would have shamed me. Thanks, yeah. Obama. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> 
I'm just a big music nerd, so of course I'm. Yeah. Gelf. So there's Geldof, there's Reganium, there's also a Star Wars reference in Chapter yes. 15. You yes, caught that? I saw that, and I was like, but huh? I was confused for a second because like, but this aired in the 60s, and it's like the book came out in the 80s. Okay, yeah. don't break your brain. Also. These Earth people are from the 25th century, 26th yeah, century. Exactly. So, all right. so Star Wars what exists is, as a fictional construct in the Classic film. Classic film. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And weirdly enough, um, there is a, a reference to blinding you with science. I which, did miss that one. Yeah, that is in chapter 11. I was just focusing on walking on broken glass. And well, it's, there was that too. It's that the was... doctor that says it, which makes it even funnier. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I don't remember the line, but I do remember it coming up and being like, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Thomas Dolby reference. Yes. And it's like, oh my God, that is brilliant. <clears throat> um, just so our readers, at our listeners at home know that I we caught this or that i caught this because supposedly expert here over here hello that business with the bennett oscillator isn't in the script and it sounds so much like something the tom baker doctor would have come up with that it makes you wonder if Marta forgot which doctor he was writing which bit are you talking about uh the bennett oscillator yeah oh are you related to the famous scientist who created the bennett oscillator because the bennett oscillator is something that comes up in the tom baker era it's on page well i know our pages are different page 111 in chapter 11 (laughs) it's 109 it's 109 for the and the yeah it works he cried or rather it will when it has been invented on the principle of photon inertia using a small array of multiply vectored lasers, he babbled on, backing away toward the huge pillars leading to the entrance. I do hope I'm not blinding you with science, Mr. Bennett. Yeah, Thomas Dolby reference. Hardcore. <laughs> That's like digging deep. Yeah, deep. just a little bit. But when I first read it, I, I don't think I caught the Geldof reference or the Reganium, but I caught that and I was like, aww. At least it's digging deep in 2017. Maybe when it came out. Just a tad bit, yeah. Yeah, it's a little... I have to say, though, end of chapter 11. Chapter 11. And then we're going to jump right to that. The Doctor's thoughts while he's being strangled have to be my favorite scene in the whole book. And I have to find what I was talking about when he's being strangled. The others got in my way just like you, Bennett growled, his eyes goggling with hysterical passion. Why do people always have to interfere? The doctor wanted to reply that he had often asked himself exactly the same question. Yes, yes, I forgot about that, (laughs) but I loved that line. But he was unable to speak or even gasp, so tight was Bennett's crushing grip around his windpipe. I would have gotten away with it if it wouldn't have been meddling, <laughs> meddling kids. kids. And That's... there's even there's even a Scooby Doo costume. The Coquillian costume yeah, yeah. is a Scooby Doo costume. Classic Scooby Doo yes. one. The original Skeptic Show. Yes, it's you never all... demons or ghosts. Yes. It's always a real estate developer. Yes, you almost expect the doctor <laughs> to pull off his mask and say, Professor Hyde White. Right. Yoink. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god. There's so many joys in this book. It's just like amazing. It really is. Um, other things that stood out to you in this um, book? 
things that you liked, things that you disliked. The fact that his description of the Daiduan city sounds like something out of Skyrim with the Falmer cities. Yeah. That was the first thing that came to my head. Those underground cities that the Falmers created. It just made me really want to see them full of people. Yeah. Like, oh, what would this place be like if it was populated? Exactly. Um, Which you'll never see on a BBC budget in 1964. I almost don't want to see it because, once again, the set in my mind is so fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think he'd be, I think he might be offended by it. Uh, I do have a profanity update, thanks yes. to the magic of search. Uh, there are, I think, four, two to four hells and a couple of dams, but they are all uttered by the secret crew or Bennett. Yes, and there's a goddamn in chapter 15, and that's the secret crew as well. So, have your cake and eat it too. Only the bad yeah. guys use extremely mild profanity. <laughs> oh, and there's something <clears throat> just to bear, bear in mind about chapter 15. Remember how the TARDIS gets there. Because the Romans is going to start so cold that you will not know how it got there unless you've read this book. <clears throat> okay. okay. Possibly. I don't know. I may remind you of this. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just imagining Romans in the New Testament being a follow-up <laughs> to this book. I'm like, that certainly is a bold direction to go in, isn't right. it? <laughs> There's also a drug reference right around that same point where uh, blending with science... And that's something unusual, too, that in a Hartnell book, we've got a drug reference, a drug usage reference, and that's so weird at the end of chapter 11, uh, page 113, no, it's uh, 111, because I think part of what Bennett was doing had something to do, yeah, Bennett stopped on the mission, eight years cooped up with McQuaid, he was high. Deoxy I was a little phenol- surprised yeah, by that. That is not that is not in the televised version. Deoxyphenyl sulfonates. Yeah, deoxyphenyl. Thank you. I couldn't pronounce that. Yeah. Deoxyphenyl sulfonates. He was high. Hmm. That's like wow. You That's guess like ten for their expertise. Yes, absolutely. There was um, back when original novels were being done, there was um, she still is a famous author. Her name is Kate Orman. And she said, um, there are certain doctors that you cannot put in certain situations. For instance, it would make no sense to have the first doctor in a cyberpunk novel. No. And I felt like saying, why not? That would, that would be interesting. But that reference to drug references in a Hartnell novel almost strikes me as, as unusual. But it okay. seems to work. So, other things that jumped out at you or you thought were I mean they do have the stuff to establish that at least some of them are kind of dirtbaggish if they're going to kill the aliens at the end if they're going to kill the Adam and Eve right if they're going to retaliate they have to make them either stupid or calloused or evil in some way yeah and they have to have an American so they have to of course they had to have at least one American American. to establish (laughs) stupid and evil yeah apparently and they got it yeah he's not exactly Trumpian it's a little early for that. But, yeah. I also found it interesting that they referred to... God, where is it? In which chapter? I think it was chapter 6. They, they referred to our Arinocolus friend? I'm using a not very good PDF reader. wouldn't allow me to copy and paste that and Google it. Because... Yeah. 
And I pride I'm, myself on having an excessively large vocabulary, and I am pretty sure I've never encountered that word before. And I did look it up, and now I can't remember what I found. But I, I l- remember looking it up and thinking, oh my god, that's Marjorie's sense of humor coming in again. Because, of course, that's not in the original. Erinonucleus. Where the hell did it come from? Oh, there it is. It's on page 68. I think that'll be 66 for y'all. Mm. Oh, the doctor threw himself backward and collided with the inn, so they both fell in a struggling heap in the sand. Then they froze as a terrible, harsh screeching noise erupted outside. This is another of my favorite scenes. What is that? Ian whispered. It sounded like some sort of gun. No, I mean that horrible shrieking. That <laughs> They lay there listening to the agonized howls. I think it must be the end for our Arinoculus friend. The doctor said quietly. Yeah. Living, burrowing, or crowing in sand. Yes. Which is very apt. Yes. For a creature named Sandy. <laughs> the words of Lisa Simpson. It's apt, I tell you. Apt! <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. But that's really, it's like, did you hear that? What was that? Sound like a gun. No, it's a scream. Are there oh. that many creatures in the episodes? Mm, just that one. Hmm. Yeah. Not the worm in the ramp? No, that's all new. That's all new. In fact, that's the thing that strikes me most as someone who's familiar with both the televised version and this version. There's so much new stuff here. And that was the only it, part where I thought it became tiresome. Really? <clears throat> Just the worm, the ramp. How long is this worm? How long is this burrow? How long is this ramp? Yeah. But, I mean, out of, that's out of the entire book. Maybe there are ten extra pages there. So that's still not bad. Yeah. And I think that's because that's literal padding. Hmm. That's that's Ian Martyr saying, you know, this is a two-parter, and the the plot is as thin as a slice of government cheese. Let's uh, plot let's see what we can do with it. It's made of vegetable oil. It's not even a dairy product. Exactly. How about you? Anything stood out for you? Mm, I don't think anything that we haven't already discussed. Um, I thought he did a good job of communicating the scale of the deadness of the planet, the size of the wreck. Mm-hmm. The isolation of what seems to be the only two people there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite astounding what Martyr does with so little. And especially when the poor man must have been suffering at the time that he was writing all this. Yeah. That's that's what gets me that gets me a little bit of a lump in my throat, I have to admit. So well, maybe we should do as we always do. <laughs> Which is go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, and I know at least 209 of you did to the last episode, and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out here. Are we getting a sponsorship from Goodreads, or at least a fruit basket? I have to talk to them. I really do, because they've gotten plenty of free press from us. <laughs> the average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.34, which is lower than the last book. Seriously? Yeah. Here's some sample I reviews. I am indignant. I'm, I'm a bit indignant, too. April, who gives it five stars, says... A really good retelling of the classic Who story. The audio re- book reader was great, so she listened to the audio book version, which was probably uh, William 
Russell, who uh, played Ian. And it really helped flash out the original story to have a bit more insight into each of the characters' thoughts and actions. The, Barbara, uh, the Doctor, Ian, and Barbara land in a strange cave on the planet Dido. The Doctor remembers the Dido natives as a completely peace-loving species, but it seems that one member of their race is holding two members of a crashed spaceship, the Astro-9, hostage nearby. Victoria and Bennett... Victoria... Yeah, she actually said Victoria. Which is completely wrong. It's a later companion, in fact. Ooh. Yeah, there's Vicky and then there's Victoria, different doctor. Are the only survivors of their crash ship and desperately await saving from the Seekers coming to rescue them. There's much of the usual running around confusion and a bit of Scooby-Doo style unmasking of the truth. There you go. But it really was an interesting story to listen to in this format. I will be seeking out other Ian Margo retellings as it appears this was his final book before passing. Yes. Ian Hamilton gave it only three stars, saying, okay. <laughs> he starts, okay. Probably worked better on screen, where it was the introduction of Vicky in the aftermath of Susan's departure, suffers from the Agatha Christie curse in that the mystery disappears quite readily if you just check everyone's story properly at the start. That said, and like Christie, Martyr's style is as much about the journey as the end result. That makes sense. Yeah. And finally, Sean LeBeau, whom we heard from last time, gives it four stars, saying, At first I thought Ian Martyr was going to lead us on nothing but a journey of extended and philosophical descriptions of a desert landscape of Dido, obviously intent on trying to stretch a two-episode throwaway story into a whole book. And I started thinking as well that maybe he should have just stuck to acting. Wow. Me, me, me. I know, but really... Well, it gets better. But we really, do not speak ill of the dead, who will? I know. But really, this book is a brilliant retelling of the serial, with added monsters, dangers, motivations, characterizations, and yes, descriptions that make reading this more worthwhile than watching the televised serial. Of course, this story introduces new companion Vicky, and she's a much fuller character in the book than she ever was on TV throughout her run. There's a lot here that reminds me of the 70s TV movie version of the Martian Chronicles. Yes. With the ghosts of the dead planet, a former thriving civilization disregarded and defiled by human arrogance and greed. An interesting twist in the book comes from the fact that the TARDIS may somehow have caused the original stream of events with its cross-materialization, maybe from the Doctor's first visit. At least, that's how I see it. Interesting. Yeah. So, what do you think of the remark about the Vicky in the book being more uh, interesting than the Vicky portrayed on the show? I think that's a grave disservice to Marine O'Brien, but I think it also says something about how paper thin the characterization of Vicky is. Mm. Marine O'Brien is just a fascinating individual. She's gone on to do much more acting beyond Doctor Who mm. and to write novels of her own. She's actually better known as a murder mystery novelist mm. uh, in Britain. In, uh, from what I understand, but that being said, yeah, there's not much to Vicky. There's not much here, and there's a lot more here than there is going to be in the televised version, and maybe even in the later novels. We'll we'll have to see, obviously. Um, Allison, you went last last time with oh. the um, stars. So, how many stars out of five well, would you, you give always this? find me so harsh? Uh, because once again, you tell me this is a scale of zero to five for but like it's not all of printed all of, literature. All, it's not applied to all of printed literature. You said it was. Okay, well, let's <laughs> go with that then. Okay, I think I went from a 1.5 on Planet of the Giant Dicks to the last one, I think it was a two. Might have been. Four. What was the title of the last book? Um, Dalek Invasion of Earth. <clears throat> um, 
I I would go a full three. Really? Yeah, which is extremely wow. high praise for me. It is. In spite of the weaknesses, um, I thought it was the it was the most fun sci-fi thing that I had read in many years, mostly because I haven't read any sci-fi in many years. But okay. I thought it was an it was a perfect book to read in early June, like a great beach book that um, was at first I thought overly ornate in language but then turned into a very nice engrossing summer afternoons read okay all right and took a very thin story and did some very good evocative atmospheric things with it yeah it does that yeah i i agree it probably hit right in the middle like a three Mm -hmm. um (laughs) there's a big difference between damn a three and dalton's a three (laughs) oh because i'm I'm not viewing this in all of literature. I'm viewing this as just me. Like, if I read something and it piques my interest enough, but it's right. not, like, the best thing I've ever read, yeah, it's a three. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was interesting. I like some of the characterizations. Uh, I'm interesting to see where things go with Vicky and mm-hmm. how uh, her relationships with Barbara and Ian and the Doctor, you know, flourish or don't. Yeah, um, yeah I feel like... Like we've said a lot, there's not a whole lot to go with. It was a two-part episode, and so Ian Martyr kind of fleshed things out, added here and there. But um, yeah, it was a good read. It was a quick read. I read it this morning before work in about two and a half hours. Um, but most of these can be read fairly quickly. Like this is like the eighth or ninth one that I've done, and most of them I've read in like one sitting. Yeah. Um, and like and like you said, like you can just sit in one afternoon, mm-hmm. and if it's if it's engrossing and it yes. appeals to you, then you can get through it. And there have been very few of these that I have like had trouble mm-hmm. with. Um, the Romans might be a little slower read. In fact, I would suggest taking it as a earlier. read. Yeah, I would because the Romans, I, I'm I'm taking my time with it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay. There's certain things I'm looking at. True. Yeah. But so you would give it a three. Yeah, I'd, I'd, we're in the middle three. It's okay, pretty good. I'm just gonna reread Romans from the New Testament next time and play it straight the entire time. <laughs> we all read the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, in context of the series, it's pretty harsh <laughs> right. based on what came before, but it's nothing compared to what you're gonna see in First Corinthians. <laughs> First Corinthians. Yes. <laughs> or um, or what was it that Trump called it? Um, two Corinthians two or two Corinthians. Corinth- yeah. Two Corinthians. Yeah. <laughs> I may shock people a little bit here. Mm-hmm. I would give this a four point two five mm. out of five, well, and I'm not com- well. I'm not comparing it to all of literature. I'm comparing it to the other Doctor Who books, mm. and Daleks, Dalek Invasion of Earth. I probably I think I gave that one a four because so. it's decent and it's Dix at his best, which is expanding. But Dix at his best is nothing compared to Ian Martyr at his best. And I think this is Ian Martyr at his best. This, I, I didn't ask you how you felt this compared to Reign of Terror. But I would say this is the better book of the two. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, being a little bit of a history, uh, I wouldn't say fanatic, but having known history, reading Reign of Terror was a little more interesting for me. Mm-hmm. But no, this this is not a bad book at all. Yeah. Um, I feel like yeah, some of some of the passages and then the descriptions were probably better than Reign of Terror. There was a lot. I feel like Reign of Terror had more to go with, yeah. so that's why it feels like it's more interesting to me. Sure, but sure. Yeah, yeah, this isn't a bad book. 
No, and I think it's an excellent book. I even though I have more trouble now with the prologue and the epilogue than I did when I was seventeen and first read it. Yeah. I really appreciate all the effort that went into it, especially knowing what Martyr was probably going through mm-hmm. in his personal life at yeah. the time that he was writing this. Because, damn, this is a so much a better story on the page than it is on mm-hmm. screen. I, there's nothing necessarily wrong with putting on the rescue and doing some knitting, having it in the background, mm. because it's that sort of story. You don't have to pay mm. a lot of attention to it. You look up for a moment when Barbara kills Sandy just to laugh at the gun falling apart, and then looking at this poor actor in this costume going, yeah. you know, in a very Pac-Man type style. But yeah, whereas this, this feels much less like a means to introduce a character and more like a self-realized story. Yeah. And it's one of those few books in the target range, at least so far, where the writer has really improved upon what's there on the screen. So, yeah, 4.5. And you said the prologue and the epilogue were written by Nigel well, Robinson? No, the prologue was written by him. The epilogue, epilogue was written by someone else. Um, epilogue was written by Robinson, um, okay. though that last chapter with the rescue ship was still written by Ian Martyr. Yeah. It's just Robinson who tacked on the uh, epilogue where the, the Diodoi get killed. Yes. So do you think that Martyr intended to euthanize the entire species? He might have done. He might have. In fact, I I would really love to at some point write to Nigel Robinson for the first time in 25 years since I wrote him that letter when I was a kid and say, um, were you going from his notes or did mm. you just decide to put this terribly bleak mm. ending yeah. on of your own mm. volition? Because, yeah, and I think there's an interesting question to be asked there because if that was Ian Martyr's intent... It does kind of fit the rest of the book. Hmm. There's a bleakness. Yeah, yeah. There is. yeah. yeah. Like the whole thing. Yeah, it's kind of that way. The two-parter is so forgettable. This book, nah. There's nothing forgettable about. But in this. the end, like even even though all all of the the natives have been killed, the fact that they have saved Vicky is like that redemption moment of like, all right, well, we saved her at least. Right. But then you have to wonder if he caused it in the first place. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that opens up even more questions. But. Yeah, which will never be resolved, but that's fine. That's the wonder and joy that is Doctor Who, all the unanswered questions. I thought that the three-dimensional electronic crossword puzzle was a really nice throwaway gag. Yeah. Poor sign, that's it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's totally And being scrambled by the TARDIS. There's yeah. Nice, there were some very good, like I said, beach book details like that that made it, I thought, much more recreationally enjoyable than the last two yeah yeah understandably of the two writers i would say even though dix has done more martyr definitely shines a lot more yeah i know dix does (laughs) dix do more (laughs) oh god all right well thanks guys and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time next time we go back to roman times with the appropriately named novelization the romans in the meantime if you've liked what you've heard here like us on facebook at doctor who target book club podcast 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 all one word with no spaces you can also visit our subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc if you add a comment on facebook or subreddit or even on soundcloud or one of our other podcast platforms anywhere 
anywhere. Text us. Yes, do something. <laughs> Call me. Don't God, I'm, so, is. I'm so yeah. desperate. Like if that. you think there's something we missed here, or you just want to tell us you like us in words, you'll be entered in our next Target <laughs> book giveaway. And we're still trying to give away that same sorry copy of the War Games. Maybe it's a different <laughs> book. If you want a different book, tell me. Email me. Tell me. In the comments saying I would rather have this book instead. You're going to become yes. like the Tenacious D song where they stalk their one fan. Yes, <laughs> it may just be that. Also, feel free to watch our videos and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at www.youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Emperor Dalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcaster provider of your choice. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and intermittently on Podbean. If all else fails you, email us at dwtarget at ah, dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. They said something on there about Codfest. I'm like, when does Codfest start? When are we going? It sounds Cod delicious. Fest. Ooh, it does sound delicious, <laughs> doesn't Cod it? Codfest. <laughs>